Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I shouldn't be here <laughs> on all of these things. I'm well out of my out of my zone, but I love it. How to DJ. D- How to DJ. DJ. D- How to DJ. The art of it is a full, high-spectrum understanding of music in all its forms. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. It was a, a labour of love, not a graft at all. All the women that I know that are, you know, my generation who are DJs, they started as dancers. They started dancing first. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I honestly think I went from a guy playing songs to someone who was fairly confident calling themselves a DJ. And for this episode, I'm with a poet. I started writing rhymes on the back of till receipts. An actor. As a kid with a stammer from a small town in Essex who never thought he'd be allowed on any of these sets. It's mind-blowing. It's a dream. And a podcaster. With radio shows, podcasts, acting, all of these things. I've had success because I've just gone, well, why not? I'm no DJ Yoda or Fatboy Slim or any of these, but I can put together a set. I can mix things about. I've got some unusual rarities and stuff. And yeah, I felt absolutely in love with it because from very early on, my mindset has been, how mad is it that I'm getting to, to do this? I've already exceeded everything I feel I should have been doing. Scroobius Pip, welcome to How to DJ. Hello, mate. It's lovely to be here. Pip, thanks so much for doing this. Before I dip into the box of questions with you, Pip, you grew up in Essex. Yes. What music were you into as a youngster? Well, I always remember when our first single came out, Thou Shall Always Kill, and it blew up. I was really excited to start to see punks turning up to our gigs because I grew up listening to a lot of punk music and... It was nice that that somehow came across because our music was never really very punk or you wouldn't categorise it under punk. There's dance, electro, hip-hop, all sorts of different things in there. But I loved that my kind of punk upbringing was obviously coming through in some of the lyrics and in some of the the attitude and and the feel of it all. So yeah, early days... Punk was the first music I fell in in love with. Prior to that, I was listening to... Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and things like that, but that all felt like it was from another time. And then just as I was entering school, I guess, the pop punk stuff was blowing up with early Green Day and Rancid and bands like that and Rage Against the Machine and and that kind of thing felt like my own. And then I dipped back into 
you know, Minor Threat, The Clash, The Pistols, Crass, all of these bands. And shortly after that, hip hop, because it it felt like it had such a connection to punk. You know, it was the voiceless being a louder voice. And yeah, I connected massively with that too. How important was music to you as a kid? It was absolutely everything from, again, I was was trying to... I think earlier of of when I started going to gigs and it was 13 or 14 it was quite young that I started going to gigs and it was all I wanted to spend my pocket money on my paper round money on and all of these things my little cd player I used to have to get a train to work and my portable cd player was absolutely key to that on the way to and from school just blasting all sorts of cds as many as I could fit in my bag yeah I'm guessing that growing up in Essex, you had easy access to London. So it wouldn't have been long as a teenager before you were venturing out in London seeing bands. Yeah, exactly that. I'd imagine early gigs at that age, I was getting picked up by my parents or someone's parents. But as soon as we were allowed to start getting the training on our own, exactly that. And it opened us up to the record stores of London. I always remember like the big Virgin Megastore and stuff like that having imports that I wouldn't have had any access to otherwise. And it wasn't really the days, I guess because I wasn't local, it didn't feel like it was the days of ordering things in. It was making the trip all the way up there, at least an hour each way, if not more, and hoping to find what you were after or, or, or an alternative. Did you have dreams of becoming a pop star back then? Not really at all. No, I didn't have any ambition of that. Part of me was kind of interested in in acting or filmmaking of some sort, I guess. But I was in some small, like, punk bands growing up. I wasn't a very good guitarist. I wasn't a natural guitarist. None of it came easy. The, The mild level of competence I gained came from a lot of practice and a lot of lessons and stuff like that. And then... Never felt I had the confidence to be a front person. So, yeah, it didn't seem realistic. I had a stammer from the age of four until now. So, particularly in those formative, delicate teenage years, anything like that seemed completely unrealistic. When did you become Scroobius Pip? Um, Well, that was weird. It was before music, really. I think I first started using Scroobius Pip when I was painting on walls that I hadn't been asked to paint on um and I was trying to make some short films and I was doing photography and I wanted to do a load of different things and I felt I needed a name for it and then I kind of became known as Pip all my old customer orders from HMV were under Scroobius Pip and this was before I did any music so it's always awkward because I never see it as a stage name like everyone assumes it's a stage name and it, it never was people knew me as Pip when I worked in HMV, but it was on the tills that I started writing rhymes on 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 the back of till receipts um, and messing about with my mates, and that's where it all became as the Scroobius Pip that kind of some of the public went on to know, I guess. How good were you at uh, painting on walls that you weren't being invited to paint on? I was all right. The thing that annoyed me at that time, so we're talking early 2000s and I was doing stencil art and the thing that annoyed me at the time that I now take as a great compliment was I had a few bits painted over with the words F Banksy 
and I'm not Banksy, obviously, but it's because there weren't that many people doing stencil art, so it was assumed any half-decent stencils were Banksy. Um, Now people would have the completely opposite (laughs) reaction because obviously all his work is worth thousands or tens of thousands. So, yeah, I was all right, but I just really enjoyed it. It was, I think, stenciling was really important for me because it was the kind of art that my meticulous and overly prepared mind could excel at if you know what I mean and that translated into rap as well like I was never a freestyler I'd really craft every syllable of every rhyme and I'd practice at home and I'd know that the second I'm stepping on stage I will know this inside and out and again I do I think that came from stenciling if you just sent me out there with a spray can I might make something reasonably creative but I was going out there with my folders and my stencils and all the stuff I'd slaved over. So in minutes, I can can put up something I'm proud of. Do you think that being so meticulous over your words and knowing every single word and being so clear about what you're going to perform was because of your stammer? Yeah, I think potentially. I think my stammer is definitely responsible for me having a wider vocabulary than I would have because particularly as a kid at school, I'd be... I'd always be thinking a sentence or two ahead of what I'm saying and trying to find words to replace the words I know I can't say as such. And I think that pushed my vocabulary as a survival instinct as much as anything. And then that in turn kind of made me fall in love with words. I was never particularly, particularly academic after GCSE level. Everything I did was arts-based. It was photography and painting and stuff like that. So... The fact that I've made a career of words is completely against what any of my school teachers might have thought, but makes complete sense when you think of the the, the things I had to kind of overcome, I guess. I hate saying overcome but because it's, it sounds like this great tr- tragedy, but as I've said there, I don't think I'd be doing half of the things I'm doing if it wasn't for having a stammer. So it's given me so much. I don't think I've um, ever asked anyone who has a stammer to explain exactly how it feels and what what it does to your mind. Mm. And I've never asked anyone how it affects their lives. And you don't have to answer. No, I'm happy to. If you are happy to, I'd love to try and understand. It's really interesting because it's something I'm constantly understanding. Only like five years or so ago, I started working with the British Stammering Association as a patron. And I'd had a stammer for 30 odd years at that point, And there was loads I didn't know. Um, I always remember when I had hypnosis at one point and we think there's various theories, but many people feel stammers are often triggered by a traumatic event in your youth. And whether mine was or not, the event that we regressed back to was me almost drowning as a child. And every time I went to scream out to my parents, water going in my mouth and, and not being able to scream or, or to breathe... And whether or not that is the event that caused it, it's relatable. It's kind of how it can feel to stammer at times. I get out of breath at times trying to say a word because a word has got so stuck and I'm so determined that I'll then have to pause and go and catch my breath or I'll get the word out and I'll be out of breath already. So, yeah, it's a weird one. I think I've said before, I think it's responsible for me being a bit of a recluse because although I'm perfectly comfortable with my 
over the years, I've always had, I've learned things in the back of my head to be helping me deal with it, to get over certain things, to get around things. And when I'm at home on my own, I don't have to do any of that. (laughs) I could just relax. Is it never something someone is born with, a stammer? I don't know. I'm not sure. I think it can be. It's really hard to gauge because as kids, our speech can be quite broken naturally whether you have a a stammer or not, and it can be hard to kind of identify these things. But most of the people I know of developed it, you know, a few years into or or far later, but at some point into their life. So, yeah, that's my experience of it anyway. Is it frustrating? Yeah, it can be incredibly frustrating. Um, As I said, I've got really comfortable with it now. It's why I do my podcast and don't edit out any stammers or anything. But yeah, it can be annoying. It 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 may sound over dramatic, but wars have been fought for freedom of speech, and to not be able to be free to say what your mind wants to say is a strange thing to have to live with. But equally, I don't know. There's always that kind of oh, there's a lot of things that are a lot worse. But as I said, yeah, it's frustrating. It can be annoying, but um, I also think I keep talking about this recently since moving into acting my stammer really excites me because every role I've had so far, the character hasn't had a stammer. So I've got it under control and, and, and delivered a stammer free take. But the idea of a character having a stammer, I've only ever seen it as a really traumatic thing or, you know, a King's speech where the whole thing is to get over this thing, a person having a stammer and it not being a key traumatic part of their story number one would be powerful but the more i obsess over acting what we're all striving for is truth or getting as close to truth as possible it can never actually be truth because it's scripted because it's characters and so on and so forth but it's getting as close as possible and a stammer when you've really got one it's not something that can kind of be controlled so i love the idea of of having a character that stammers naturally and that truth just pouring onto the screen you know would you say it's been a traumatic part for your story again it's tough it's hard with memories isn't it because i don't know memories turn into to highlights of a movie i know there were points at school it was annoying but i don't think i was one of the most bullied kids at school or anything i like that i certainly wasn't one of the cool kids but i don't think i have a particularly traumatic childhood story and then Again, after a load of nothing jobs, I've moved into rapping and broadcasting and acting and all these things that a stammer should stop you from doing. So again, if anything, maybe it's motivated me more. Maybe it's excited me more. I I feel I don't get particularly nervous. I never really got particularly nervous on stage and I don't get particularly nervous on set. And I think part of that is... Because from very early on, my mindset has been, how mad is it that I'm getting to, to do this? I've already exceeded everything I feel I should have been doing. So everything on set, it's like, rather than maybe I don't belong here, it's like, oh no, I definitely don't belong here. I'm about three careers on from where I belong. So I'm just enjoying the ride for now, you know? Success as a hip hop act, 2008. Yeah. As one half of Dan the Sack and Scroobius Pip. Must have felt momentous for you. Yeah, it was madness. We, when that shot always killed blew up, I recorded that vocal in my bedroom at my mum's house. 
Dan was living in like a bed setting Reading. Neither of us particularly had any contacts, any family in the industry, any of, of these things. My uncle used to do record label stuff, but it was a long way from what we were doing. So there was no real in there. So the fact that we wrote this song, he sent me a beat. I'd already been doing the bulk of Thou Shout as a spoken word piece and I adapted it and recorded it over the beat and returned it in under two hours of him sending it to me. And then we uploaded it on MySpace and we sent it to John Kennedy and it blew up from there. A few months later, we had a radio plugger and at least a single being released and then an album deal and all these other things. And yeah, this is just two lads from a very small town in Essex and we had a platform all of a sudden. It was on an album called Angles, I Shall Always Kill. Two more albums followed. Why did you stop the band? Um, it was an interesting one. I felt I'd done what I wanted to do. I felt I was finished and it's rare that people, particularly in these industries, choose when to stop, if you know what I mean. And a Repent, Replenish, Repeat was our biggest album commercially and critically it was our by far our biggest tours our biggest festival sets and it felt kind of beautiful to go right let's call it a day there again particularly when we started there was a lot of people who we gigged with and came up with who signed to major labels or any labels and everyone would sign a three album deal and not many of them got to do three albums gigging with Kate Nash and Jack Peñate and Adele and all these people. Obviously, Adele is, is very much a success story and, and continuing on. And so are the, are the others, but they've had to move and change and find themselves. And it felt that when me and Dan got to do three records and be happy with them, it felt m- mad to me. And my original plan was to take a year out to try acting out, and then I fell in love with it, and I, I realised I didn't miss the stage, I didn't miss... um. Yeah, I felt like I'd done what I wanted to do there. And again, as I was saying earlier, it had gone far better than I ever expected. So I had no kind of unfinished business as such. When did you first DJ, Pip? Well, the first times I tried to DJ or wanted to DJ, I'd put mixtapes together and I'd hand them into Stu Whiffin, who I didn't know, but he ran our local alternative club, the Pink Toothbrush. And that would have been end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. And then years later, around 2010, Stu Whiffin approached me and asked if I wanted to do a club night with him um, at the book club in Shoreditch. And I was all over that, you know. I'd, I'd, I'd had some really bad CD decks for years, but I wanted to get some CDJs. I wanted to kind of learn it all a bit better. And so, yeah, it was around 2009 or 2010 that we started the We Are Lizards Club Night at the book club in Shoreditch. And we did that for 10 years. And I honestly think I went from a guy playing songs to someone who was fairly confident calling themselves a DJ. Like I'd, I'd, I'd take bookings elsewhere and feel I could, you know, I'm no DJ Yoda. Or, or or Fatboy Slim or any of these, but I can put together a set, I can play some good s- songs, I can mix things about, I've got some unusual r- rarities and stuff. And yeah, I felt absolutely in love with it. It's As I said, we did that for 10 years, and it's another one that we stopped 
because I was like, right, this is still wicked. I don't want to have to stop in an, another five years as music tastes change or sh- as Shoreditch changes or whatever else. I was like, we've done 10 years of sold out shows. Every time we did that club night, it got to capacity. And again, it felt like a great time to str- stroll away. Yeah. It's time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box at my side. Okay. All the questions are on 45 sleeves. Mm-hmm. I'll dip into the box. You say when. I'll pull one out. Perfect. And how about there? What was your finest DJ moment? Um, My best ever DJ set, which was at the book club. I'd Me and Dan Lassac had been asked gracefully by... F- Frank Turner to support him at Wembley obviously we accepted it but I had my club night on that same night and I felt bad cancelling we'd already pre-sold some tickets so I played at Wembley and then about halfway through Frank's set annoyingly I had to go and get a cab and I came and DJed in this 200 cap venue I always used to DJ in a rubber lizard mask and I think the buzz of playing Wembley gave me a confidence I've never, and being a bit tipsy, um, gave me more confidence than I'd ever had. And it it felt like a set that I just couldn't put a foot wrong in. Every beat matched, every song I chose went in. Songs I've never mixed together went together seamlessly. It was one of those real flow state moments. It was like everything I grabbed was just perfect. And I always remember that as kind of a, yeah. The confidence got me through there and and put me up a level. Do you remember any of what you played that night? Well, I would always start with Anti Up. I'd I'd, I'd do kind of a bit of a beat juggling thing on the intro of Anti Up. Um, I remember playing a mix I'd done of a Maccabees song because I think at that point I'd gone mainly hip-hoppy at the club night, but the origin was more indie and hip-hop and all these other things. So I think... Watching Frank at Wembley and and Billy Bragg was also on that night. I remember there was things like the Walkman I slung in there and stuff like that. And there was, yeah, a variation as well as all the aggressive hip hop that I would play week in, week out. (laughs) Just remembered that I was there that night. Oh, really? At Wembley. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was a hell of a night, right? It was mad for us because we were on the, the second act on, I think. I think we thought, oh, it'll be fairly empty, but... Frank's crowd turns up on time so we had this full Wembley just there for us to do our thing it's amazing yeah well my brother-in-law is in Frank's band he's one of the sleeping souls so I remember how excited they were and a bit kind of in disbelief that they got Billy with all due respect to you Pip they got Billy Bragg supporting them yeah that way round with all due respect to Frank who I absolutely adore if Billy was on last, I'm not sh- sure if I would have been able to, to, to bring myself to leave halfway through as I had to, as I had a responsibility to do. But to do our set, then to watch all of Billy's set and then the bulk of Frank's set was, yeah, hell of a night. Okay, back into the box for your second question. Say when. Yes, go ahead. And we'll go there. Okay. Is anything possible? Oh, 100%. 100%. I always feel so much of the stuff I've achieved a big chunk of it comes from just doing it. I've definitely got friends who are more talented DJs than me. I've definitely got friends who are better with words than me. 
when we used to write raps on on the tills at HMV, there were people who were better than me. It's just I was the one that went, I'm just going to do it. And I've done that my whole career with radio shows, podcasts, acting, all of these things. I've had success because I've just gone, well, why not? Someone has to do all these things. Why not? And just I've given it a go. Acting being the latest thing. Yeah. Are you loving it? I can't get enough, mate. Honestly, it's an absolute addiction. It's weird because it's the only thing I've ever done that really relies on other people. Like, I can't just act. I need to get booked for a gig. I need to to get cast in a show. And that's a weird thing. Like, I've, I've got a, a load of scripts and stuff I'm trying to get made at the moment. But again, even that's a, a slow mix of getting people involved. So that side of it is weird. But uh, honestly, even the acting aside, j- j- just getting to be on set for me is an absolute dream. As a TV and film nerd, and again, as a kid with a stammering and from a small town in Essex who never thought he'd be allowed on any of these sets. It's mind-blowing. It's a dream. What's your favourite thing you've done so far? Um, it's a toss-up. I did a show called Taboo with Tom Hardy and Stephen Graham and numerous others on the BBC. And that was amazing. I had a small role, but man, was it good to be part of. And those guys all embraced me and taught me so much and took me under their wing. But then I did a show in end of 2020 into 2021 it was on NBC in America it was a show called Debris and that was the first show where I was like a key character and I got to go back and forth with the showrunner and the creator and and put put ideas forward and they would get used and it was the first thing I'd done where I felt I had major input on that character there's certain things in there that I'd do like a video and send it off to the guys who's in charge going I've had I've had this idea I was, I was in an Airbnb on my own for seven months. So it was also the hardest gig I've ever done because it was in the pandemic. I couldn't tr- travel back to the UK. I couldn't see friends and family. But man, was it amazing to get to have that creative input. And again, it motivated me more to, to get my own projects off the ground as well. You know, you seem to be the master of that. Going back into the box then now, Pip, for your third question. You say when. Yeah. Dig away and that'll do me. Go ahead. Have you ever felt euphoric? Yeah, loads. People often think that because I talk about how I don't miss gigs, that I didn't enjoy them, or I didn't get a buzz. I got a buzz from every single one, as as numerous points th- th- throughout the gig, as we came off stage. On our final tour, there was a song called G- Gold Teeth, and our final tour was the first tour where we had a lighting guy. And Gold Teeth is by no means... My favourite song that we've done, I'm proud of it, I like it, but that song with that lighting guy was just a joy to perform and it would just, it would feel euphoric. It'd feel like everyone's in another world as we're performing this. So yeah, always felt euphoric on stage and there's just moments of of creation that feel like that. I've been lucky that I can feel that euphoria on my own as well and the easiest example is to go back to the talk of stenciling. I'd draw up my stencils and then you, you start to fill in the black areas. And I'd always f- fill the eyes in last if it was a portrait because that is the moment that, that, that it comes to, uh, to life. It, it goes from being a load of lines to a face, a person. Their soul comes through when you complete the eyes. That would be a buzz, but there's a comparison with 
writing rhymes like when you find that one bit that makes it all come together and with and with writing scripts when you find that scene that ties everything together and you get that moment of yes this is i've made something good here how to dj with chris hawkins still to come as i'm falling asleep i'll think of the correct answer to that but at the moment it's all kind of been (laughs) pushed aside for my own comfort i guess that kind of thing means the world and particularly as an upcoming artist you 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 remember that pip another one say when yep and when so this is what's the best thing anyone's ever said about you the first ever review i read of my stuff it was before i was working with dan they referred to me as the louis theroux of hip-hop and that's a hell of a compliment um outside of that it's hard to know man I really struggle. Something I've tried to get better with in recent years is I struggle with receiving compliments or receiving praise. It's not something I enjoy or feel comfortable with. After the fact, it'll always be, oh man, that's dope that someone has said something nice. But yeah, I guess it's not something I keep a note of or keep track of because of the discomfort. So at about 12.34 tonight as I'm falling asleep, I'll think of the correct answer to that but at the moment it's all kind of been <laughs> pushed aside for my own comfort i guess a uh, final question from the box now Pip. so same and uh, let's go there what is music perfection oh man that's a tough question because growing up or listening to punk punk is so much about the opposite of perfection ian mckay used to say i'd rather listen to four lads whose ambition and what they want to say exceeds their musical ability than four lads who've got all this music ability and nothing to say or do. So I guess it's just, it's when those messy bits of passion and energy come together. And DJing's a prime example of that. Everyone who DJs will have had that flow state moment where two tracks just come together perfectly and the crowd react and it all drops in and it's all on point. So. Yeah, that's as close to musical perfection as you can get, I think. Pip, it's been amazing catching up with you. And you, mate. It's um, been a long time. It really has. I was talking to, as as I said before we were recording, I was talking to Stu Whiffin today and saying how you would play us in those real early days and always give us loads of support and enthusiasm and that kind of thing means the world and particularly as an upcoming artist. You, you you remember that because, or particularly as an artist that comes from somewhere where you don't expect radio play or don't feel you b- b- by default are entitled to it. So all of that stuff was always mad to us. So yeah, it's been good to catch up and I appreciate you, man. The best part of 15 years on now, Pip. Yeah. One last question for you. Yeah. It's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records on earth. What would those records be? Oh, wow. The last three records on Earth, that's a huge question. <laughs> I mean, that's a tough one. There's one song I used to always play that I didn't, didn't used to hear anyone else play, and that's Rabalama Ding Dong by R- Rocky Sharp and the Replays, and it would always catch the crowd off, off, off guard. But I loved those songs. I had a few like that that I'd play. There was always the, um, the Hackney Colliery Band Pr- Prodigy Mega Mix which is amazing as well. It's not in my list. I'm not going to put it in my three. It'd be number four. But that was one that I'd play it 
and the crowd will be confused for a, a bit. And then when it all comes in, they'll go, all right, and go for it. Um, the second one I'd pick would have to be Anti Up by MOP, the Buster Rhymes kind of intro remix thing. I started almost every DJ set I've ever done with it. And I kind of had a rule at my club night that at least none of the other residents were allowed to play it. Because it's like, that's my that's my starting song. You can't do that. The guest DJs, I wouldn't have the gall to tell them what to do, but I would be a bit heartbroken if one of them played it. Um, and then I'd end on a track that I started only playing in the last couple of months of my DJing life. And I, I got the acapella of Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. And I just added a, dr- a drum beat to come in about halfway through the first verse to keep driving it through. And then at the end of that chorus, after the first verse, they just the Wouldn't It Be Nice, I just l- let it ring out on that. And it was beautiful because as soon as you begin, like the acapella starts with the ding, 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 and then on the boom, it becomes an acapella. So it was so, it encouraged everyone to sing along. So it's this beautiful club-wide sing-along of Wouldn't It Be Nice. And then the drum just comes in to drive people on a little bit. And then it just ends with the, the wouldn't it be nice? Just so that would be the perfect way to, to to see the world out, I guess. Absolutely fantastic choices. What a way to go. Thank you so much, Pip. Thoroughly enjoyable. And thank you for asking. Scroobius Pip. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. 